everybody. Welcome to the weekly live stream. My name is Ryan Pauly. Uh, my goal, my, I, my idea here is to challenge you to think deeply about Christianity, the Christian worldview, and the important things in life. I also want to give you guys the opportunity to learn from some scholars, people that have truly thought deeply about Christianity and the issues that we face, as well as interact with them and be able to ask them questions and learn from them. And so today we're going to continue with the thinking deeply about Christianity, today focusing on the historical aspect of Christianity, really looking at the historicity of Jesus Christ, what are the documents that we get the information from. We're going to be looking at canonicity, where did the Bible come from, how do we choose the books who are written in the Bible, are the Gospels uh, written? by the gospel writers? Are they anonymous? And we're going to be trying to answer those questions as well as the questions that you have. And so thank you guys for joining me. And to discuss this is going to be author and apologist and pastor Brian Chilton. He has written this book, the manual on, or the layman's manual on Christian apologetics, bringing the essentials of apologetics to the ivory, from the ivory tower to the everyday Christian. So Brian, thank you for coming on and joining me. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's a joy and privilege to be on with you today. Yeah. I'm very envious. It is bright, warm, and sunshiny where you are, and it is cold, damp, and miserable where I am. So I'm very envious to see that sunshine over there. Yeah, we definitely have bright, sunny days here in Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> and it is. I said I am very envious. Yeah. <laughs> I won't try to rub it in too much. I, I, won't, bring, I won't bring it up. Um, awesome. Well, Brian, you are a senior pastor of a church, but you're also uh, in Christian apologetics. You have founded uh, Bellator Christie, and you are also a PhD student in the philo- oh, sorry, the theology and apologetics program at Liberty University, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, so Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit, what is Bellator Christie? Bellator Christie came about around in uh, 2012. Uh, it's a very interesting story. In fact, it uh, started with a podcast, and the and the website developed out of it. I had a I was pastoring a church at the time, and um, and, and go not trying to run too much deep of a rabbit trail, but I I left the faith for about seven years, and then it was through apologetics that I came uh, back to the faith, and uh, eventually the Lord led me into ministry. But I had a friend a friend of mine, his name's Shane. He and I had a fantasy football podcast. And so yes, there's actually something good that can come out of fantasy football. We had this we had this podca- uh, podcast going on talking about sports and fantasy football and and a guy from the church, uh, Daryl's his name, he said, "Brian, he said, I enjoy your podcast, but why don't you do something talking about uh, you know, theology or or you know, defending the faith and then the uh, the light bulb came, you know, it, it popped up in my mind and said, "Oh yeah, that's a good idea." And so uh, and so I think it was called something like Redeeming Truth at that time, but it later developed into the Bellator Christie podcast and then bellatorchristie.com. And Bellator Christie is Latin for a warrior of Christ or soldier of Christ. And so the goal of the online ministry is, uh, as we say, take up the sword of Christian theology, the offensive side, and then taking up the shield of uh, Christian apologetics which is the defensive side. So uh, it, we have kind of like the gladiator theme where we, we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas and because uh, I truly believe that, uh, uh, as Justin Martyr did in the second century, that the best philosophy is the Christian philosophy. It's, it's the only philosophy that, uh, as, as the late Ravi Zacharias said, that answers the questions of life, origin, meaning, and purpose. And, and so, uh, so I, I really believe and, and am even more convinced as I study uh, the truths of Christianity that uh, it can withstand any objection that's thrown against it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that's important for us to recognize is that, um, man, there are many objections that come our way, and Christians should not be afraid to think deeply about those objections, to face those objections. We don't have to shy away from them. There have been absolutely. really smart Christians for the last 2,000 years responding <laughs> yeah. to the objections that we are facing, uh, even though maybe they had slightly different cultural issues. These objections were present then, and they're present now. And so we don't have to be afraid of this. We can think deeply and not shy away from it. Now, you um, also have, uh, so you're the PhD student, but you, you've come out with this book, uh, The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book, uh, kind of the, the focus of it, as well as uh, who, you know, kind of your target audience. Absolutely. So um, I, I, we changed churches. Um, we felt the Lord leading us to uh, the Westfield community here in the Pilot Mountain, North Carolina area. And if you're familiar with the Andy Griffith show, it's the one insane Mount Pilot that you hear about uh, on that uh, on that show. Uh, but uh, I came across a, uh, a wonderful man of God. His name is Daniel Merritt, Dr. Daniel Merritt. And he asked me to uh, if I would create a class for uh, for individuals who may not have had uh, seminary level training, uh, and there's some very very intelligent people going through the program, it has nothing to do with their intelligence level, but individuals who haven't been uh, exposed to Christian apologetics. So something that is at a lay level challenging, but at a lay level um, uh, audience so that anyone who's not had necessarily seminary education can understand these truths. And and uh, so the layman's manual of Christian apologetics came out of the material that was developed for this course. And, um, you know, as in, uh, so the notes were something like 150 pages and this, uh, the book is turned out to be about 216 pages altogether, but it, it really came out of this, uh, uh, this desire to see a class. In fact, there were many individuals who were approaching him saying, we need some training on apologetics. We have youth who are coming to us, asking us questions. They're being challenged by certain things and we don't know how to respond to these issues. And so um, the, the notes were developed into a book, and then out of that was birthed uh, the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. And it's interesting how God works because I had planned two or three times to write a book on Christian apologetics, but it never really quite fleshed out the way I wanted it to. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, through this process, the book came out, and that's exactly what I was actually wanting to do all along uh, to do something for people who are interested in apologetics but may not uh, be deep enough to understand um, s some of the things that's discussed in deeper f philosophical works. Like Alvin Plantinga, I mean, he is a master blaster, but that's not a book you want to pick up initially if you're studying apologetics. That's for later on. I can read his work two or three times and still not completely yeah. understand what he said, you know, because yeah. he's that good. But um, So this is a lay-level introduction to Christian apologetics. Um uh, Later on, I would like to go back and deal with some of the themes that we talk about in the book in more depth. Uh, but uh, I think that's going to be post-PhD yeah. days when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's so good. And, and you know, I always used to recommend, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. Absolutely. As a great uh, overview. That is a lot longer than this book. It's it's Oh, and, absolutely. And so this definitely is, uh, I think, a good resource of what you've mentioned there, where you start off with, you know, what is apologetics? What is truth? The role of logic uh, in truth. And then you get into the existence of God and theological objections, the arguments for God's existence 
Independence. Uh, today, what we're going to be talking about is the historicity of Jesus and the veracity of Scripture um, and, and looking at the evidence for the resurrection and, and a lot of those things. So really starting at truth, existence of God, the truth of Scripture, miracles, mm-hmm. do they occur, really is that overview uh, and, and a very readable, uh, short, as you can see here, not super thick book. Um, very nice yeah. <laughs> uh, intro to to what you there have presented there. Um, and it's amazing how that switches over because, you know, I had this stack of pages. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a lot bigger than I intended it to be. Then it, it comes out. It's like, man, how did that get so small <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And now you, you kind of um, – so – what has led you then into kind of your your focus and kind of what you enjoy about uh, apologetics is the historical aspect, which is why we're going to be yeah. discussing the historical aspect of that. And again, if you're watching, uh, send in any questions you have on on canonicity and how do we choose the books and the history uh, and and the evidence behind Jesus and the truth of Scripture and archaeology and all that kind of fun stuff. You can send in those questions and we'll try to get to them. Uh, but why? What kind of drew you to the historical apologetic? Well, this actually goes back to my testimony. Uh, when when I went through times of doubt, I, and I was I was hurt by you know the church. Uh, that was one of the things I think a lot of people who go into a time of doubt are. Uh, but one of the things in the nineties, uh, late nineties, is I came across the Jesus Seminar. It was big back then, and uh, you had in, individuals like John Dominic Croson and many others who were saying that. Uh, only a small fragment of uh, the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament could be could be trusted. And so uh, when I came across some Christian leaders, uh, and this isn't to be uh, to badmouth anyone, it's not intended to be, but the response I received was, well, how dare you ask such questions? And and I would say, well, how do I know the Bible is the Word of God? And they says, well, because it says so. I mean, that's the type of responses I received. And so I really didn't believe that there was anything out there. Uh, I didn't know of a Christian apologetics at the time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really think that there were any answers. So I fell into agnosticism, but I never I never got to the point where I was an atheistic-leaning agnostic. I believed that there was something out there. So I didn't come to the point that I exclusively denied God's existence. But I just didn't know if there's any religion that completely had the information right. And I didn't know if it was could be verified that Jesus rose from the dead. And I didn't know if it could be verified that the Bible was accurate in what it said. So it was actually the historical information in July of 2005 when I came across uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ and Josh McDowell's The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. As I was turning the pages through those works, I began to see there are reasons for believing that the Bible is valid in the historical claims that it presents. So my focus on history has really been uh, part of that testimony, part of my testimony, that um, that the, the claims of the Bible can be verified. And of course, it, it's more difficult to prove certain things uh, in Scripture as it is others. I mean, it's difficult uh, to, to go back. The, old, the, the, the uh, farther back in time you go, the more difficult it would be to uh, find um, uh, a smoking gun, or so to speak. It would be more difficult to find some things the farther back you go. But I still think there are enough historical evidences out there to demonstrate that these things took place. And so that, again, but going back to my testimony, that was part of the reason 
why I focused on uh, history. In fact, my uh, minor in the Ph.D. program in theology and apologetics is in, is in church history, is in history in general. So, uh, so I kind of bring in that historical side to uh, the philosophical theology that we study in the program. Oh, well, that's really good. You know, so I hear a lot of people, uh, and even my thought too, and a lot of times is there's a complaint of uh, there isn't much apologetics in the church. Um, and, and so it is unique when you yeah. are a senior pastor of a church and also a Christian apologist. Um, so I, I'm just curious on maybe some advice you have on some thoughts that you have on that kind of connection as many people are trying to say, pastor, we need apologetics. And the pastor's often you know, maybe are the ones ignoring it. I, although I know a lot of great churches that they're not, so we're not saying that's a universal, but I, I'm just curious on kind of the thoughts you have and maybe some advice you have as a senior pastor and a, an apologist. Well, unfortunately, I, I think that many times in church, we have such a focus on emotionalism and there's nothing wrong with emotions. We, you know, it's, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Ravi Zacharias is he brought forth a pastoral apologetics. And by the way, if you see empty bookshelves behind us, we're getting ready to move. So, <laughs> so I, use, I normally would have those bookshelves stacked. That's bothering me as I'm seeing this, I'm seeing empty bookshelves. <laughs> that's heresy for a PhD student. I know. have empty bookshelves. You're a PhD student and I see about 15. <laughs> Books. What's wrong? Come on, no. <laughs> wrong there. <laughs> but but I'll put uh, it back up for everyone to see those bookshelves. It, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. But yeah, normally I found that there are about four responses that the church has made, and I think uh, the, the one response is the Amish response. No, no offense to the Amish out there, but but it's this idea that we are going to uh, separate ourselves from society. Uh, it's us versus them, so we're going to take ourselves out of society. But the problem is, is that Jesus called us to minister and reach out to those in society. I remember something that Ed Heinsen said uh, at, at my graduation from my MDiv from the MDiv program. Is he, he said that we now have the technology to reach more people today than the Apostle Paul could in the first century. And that's why I appreciate what you're doing here, Ryan, and many others who are using technology for the glory of the Lord to, to get the word out there that Christianity is worth believing. Uh, and and uh, we have enough evidence to believe in Christ and more than enough evidence because of the book you mentioned. We just don't have enough faith to be an evidence uh, to be an atheist. So uh, the Amish response is to just segment ourselves away from society. The second response is the ostrich response, where we're just gonna we're gonna hide our head in the sand and deny that there's a problem. But study after study shows that there are more and more people leaving the church. Uh, and, so, and even now, as we're going through the pandemic, uh, the questions asked: uh, How many people are going to come back to the church? Once we get things back to normal, and and that's a big question there as well. Uh, we're losing people left and right, and so the way to win people to the Lord is uh, is to really deal with the issues and really proclaim the gospel. Uh, the third is the scapegoat response, and this is where a lot of times we want to blame someone else for the condition of the church. So that's the easy way out. We'll just blame somebody for yeah. the problems that we have. But I think the best response is the shepherd response. Uh, shepherds in ancient times, I mean, they, they were like modern MMA fighters. They had to be ready to throw down at any moment. I mean, because there may be wild animals out there that try to attack their flock, or there may be people trying to steal their sheep. But they stood firm, ready to uh, to to fight back if necessary. And I think 
this fighting that I'm talking about isn't a physical form, but as Paul talks us, we're, talks about, we're, we're fighting against principles and principalities, or fighting against spiritual realities out there, and we're trying to take every thought captive. So this fight that we have is a spiritual fight, not a physical one. And in the way we fight, take up the armor of Christ, one of the one of the aspects of that is to engage the Scripture and to see uh, whether there are proofs out there for our faith. And that may scare some people. I realize that. But when you really start digging in the evidence and uh, you really start seeing that, that Jesus really was a person who walked in the first century, talked in the first century, who literally died was literally buried and literally rose from the grave, that's very transformational. And uh, it, it changes the way you even view Scripture and the way you even view worship. Um, I think at times in my life, I've kind of looked at the Bible as being something more than something comparable to a comic book, you know, something that's, that's nice to think about, but I may not think about the reality of it all. But when you see the historical evidence, you begin to understand that these these were real people, these were real places. These were real events. And this was a real God that intervened throughout the history of humanity. And again, it's just, it completely transforms a person uh, once we start realizing that. Absolutely. And it's so important when we're dealing with students and trying to help them understand the the aspect and, and how uh, apologetics and, and the, the stories of scripture and how they relate to us and how they are real. I think that so many times we tell uh, the Bible stories, just like we tell other stories, and sometimes the kids grow up, and and it's hard to separate, you know, and uh, the stories of Jesus and the stories of the Old Testament, and and David with the stories of Jack and the Beanstalk or whatnot. And maybe it sounds yeah. just as crazy because it contains a miracle, and they go, well, obviously, there's no beanstalk that grows up in the sky in the same way that maybe there's no uh, creation of Adam and Eve, or there's no creation of these things. And and really, when we look at the historical aspect, there is a there's a massive difference between these stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I even kind of think about, uh, you know, the Marvel comics, DC comics and stuff like that, you know, with the popularity of the comics that we have now. I mean, the question I have is if we don't engage in apologetics, do we not could, could it not be possible that we're looking at the stories of Scripture as we're looking at Thor or the Hulk or Spider-Man or something like that? And uh, I think apologetics really grounds us and shows us that this is real history. This is something that actually took place. Yeah. Well, here's the first question actually came in and kind of a basic uh, intro to apologetics. Uh, what is apologetics really? Uh, so it says, I have a question, uh, the fifth trumpet. Uh, to me, the word apologetics seems to mean being on defense. Is this accurate? Okay. So the word apologetics, um, it, it uh, comes from two words, uh, apo. Uh, meaning from or, or out of, and logia, meaning uh, logos, or logia, uh, meaning from logic. So what we're doing, and when we're giving a defense, we're not necessarily being defensive, uh, but what we're doing is we are uh, showing the reasons, as Peter would say, for the hope that we have within us. Uh, we're giving evidences. In fact, this is something you see all throughout Scripture, people do. One of my favorite stories, Jesus himself was an apologist. One of my favorite stories uh, in the gospel uh, pertaining to Jesus' apologetic was uh, when John the Baptist, uh, whenever he was uh, in prison, he knew his execution was nigh. So he sends his disciples to go out to ask Jesus, saying, Are you really the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? And so if you read the scripture carefully, it shows that Jesus performed all of these miracles. I kind of envision him saying, 
watch this. And so he, <laughs> he heals the blind. He, he uh, allows the deaf to hear. He raises the dead even, does all these miracles. And he says, hey, go back and tell John the Baptist what you've seen and heard. And so Jesus himself gave evidence for who he was. In fact, I think that's what the resurrection even is. It's yeah. an evidence of that everything that Jesus said and did in his life uh, was true. That was the Father's own seal of approval upon Jesus uh, by the resurrection itself. So we are giving a defense, uh, but what we're basically doing, we don't, we don't have to be defensive. We don't necessarily need to even be argumentative. What we're doing is we're showing the reasons why people can be a Christian. And that's something that Paul did quite often in his uh, in his uh, messages in Athens and Jerusalem and wherever he went. Yeah, and I think it's, it's all, yeah, and I think it's important too to, to point out the, the idea that uh, you are given a defense, but oftentimes there's offensive and defensive apologetics where you're going yeah. on the offense and you're just giving reasons for belief. Here are the good reasons to believe in God, and then more the defensive is answering uh, questions and objections against Christianity. Uh, so there's here's the evidence for the resurrection why you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and okay, well, what about you know, the hallucination theory. Okay, now you're kind of on the defensive or you're giving a, a response to an objection. And so there definitely are those two different sides of, of uh, how you are responding or, or, or giving evidence for. So, uh, And that's interesting. You mentioned the hallucination uh, argument. Uh, I had a, I've, I've been blessed to have three classes with Dr. Gary Habermas mm -hmm. uh, in the program. And he, he brought out some information that I hadn't even considered. He said the hallucinations are something that happens within an individual now, you could have an illusionist, but you can't have a mass hallucination. You know, and here we are at, at the Ascension Day in, in this stage in the church history's calendar. And so if you think about it from, from Easter till today, that's the length of period, that's the length of time that Jesus was here on earth. Wow. And all throughout that time, he was seen by massive groups of people. And I think that Luke even records that he uh, did many infallible proofs, which I think Jesus went back to business as normal. I, I kind of envision that he was going back and healing people, even as he did before, and, uh, and 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 really just showing and demonstrating the fact that he had indeed risen from the dead. Forty days. I mean, that's an incredible length of time. So, I don't think that hallucination uh, theory. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I know we were talking about <laughs> rabbits before the before the show, but but uh, that's one that's one of the uh, the things about the hallucination theory. I just don't think it adds up. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. You know, and and for those watching, I, I did interview Dr. Gary Habermas. You know, the, probably the leading expert on the evidence for yeah. the resurrection just a few months ago. So I'll definitely link uh, that below, or maybe there's a tag that'll come up over there uh, where you guys can see that. Um, Gary but, is the man. I'm just going to tell is. you, he is the man. Yeah, it was so much fun <laughs> talking with him and be able to, you know, I, I was a little bummed that we had only about 30 minutes on the resurrection and then we did 30 minutes on near-death experiences. And to me, oh, that man. was a blast. I, I, I was able to, to, uh, to have a conversation with him at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting back in November. And I waited to talk to him for probably 45 minutes because he was talking to two guys about near-death experiences. And at the end, he goes, were you really waiting for me this whole time? I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm so sorry. I said, don't be. I love that conversation. Like to <laughs> eavesdrop on his conversation with these guys. It was awesome. Um, all right, so so you, so you mentioned uh, that, that the time between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, he appeared to many people, uh, and that kind of leads into uh, your chapter on the evidence, the historical evidence for the truth of, 
uh, of Jesus and the historicity of Jesus is that one of the things that we have are the creeds. Uh, and the creeds, yes. uh, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, mention the list, uh, not only the evidences, but also mention the list of people that Jesus appeared to. So uh, any comments you have uh, on how we can use the creeds, uh, especially that one uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in showing the historicity of Jesus? This is something that, for me, when I first heard about this, and and I actually had a, uh, the opportunity in the program to uh, to uh, to take a class with Dr. Habermas on the New Testament creeds, and it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you, you have these early creeds, and of course, First Corinthians fifteen verses three through seven uh, is one of the more popular of the creeds. You know, the Philippians hymn. Uh, there may very well be another uh, early creed, as, w- as well as many others throughout Scripture. But you have individuals. What's phenomenal about this is you have individuals, even like Bart Ehrman, who says that this material, especially the First Corinthians 15 creed, dates no later than two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's at ground zero. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was um, James D.G. Dunn, if if I have my information correct, who says uh, something like that he thinks it was within months after the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So these creeds are among some of the earliest material that you'll ever find pertaining to Jesus. And the interesting thing is you have guys, and again, I, I believe this is correct, like Richard Baucom, who states things like that the earliest Christianity was the highest Christianity. So right out the gate, right out of the gate, you have the early Christians, the earliest creeds stating that Jesus had died by crucifixion, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Uh, in the book of Acts, all the sermon summaries that you find, these are these are early uh, creedal material. This is early creedal material as well. And Paul even states in uh, one of the sermon summaries, that he was buried, the tomb was found empty, so to speak. There's the there's a, implicitly, uh, he states that the tomb, uh, or actually, no, I think it's more explicitly, that he states that the tomb was found empty. So out the gate, you have Christians stating that Jesus died, buried, was rose again, he rose again, and you see that they indicate that he was God come in flesh. So again, the earliest Christianity was the highest Christianity. So this this whole idea of uh, the legendary hypothesis that the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus came about over a period of time is is just simply not verified by the evidence. These this early creedal material indicates that right out the gate, uh, the belief was there in the earliest Christians that Jesus rose again, uh, the tomb was found empty, and that he was in fact God. Uh, come in flesh. And to me, especially thinking back about the doubts I had, th- this was a grand slam when I first learned about this creedal material. Yeah, you know, and I think it's so important because uh, I was sitting on an airplane years ago. A guy challenged me. Uh, he actually, you know, I share this story frequently, but I, I was uh, he was not a happy guy when he sat down next to me. And so I tried to talk to him. He didn't want to talk. And so I just pulled out a book and uh, I was reading uh, The Five Sacred Crossings by Craig Hazen. And uh, about halfway through the flight, you know, he goes, what book are you reading? 
and I, it was kind of an angry voice like that. And I was like, oh, I'm reading a book on, on uh, if you are starting a religious quest, uh, there's a, five reasons you should start with Christianity. And he, you know, he goes, no, you can't know anything about religion. And it's like, oh, you know, how'd you come to that conclusion? And we had a really interesting conversation. But one point that he brought up was uh, that many of the manuscripts are written hundreds of years in the sixth or seventh century. And I said, you know, even if that's true, that many manuscripts that we have come late, if they match what is early, it doesn't matter. So if right. we if we have something early that is the same as what comes 700 years later, even though the majority of what comes 700 years later is is late, if what is early matches, uh, then, it, then it still holds that incredible weight. Because again, of course, as time went on, people copied and copied more manuscripts. Right. And so uh, th I think that's a huge point when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, that it lays out that he was he was crucified, that he was buried, that he raised, and he appeared to the 12 and to Cephas, and he appeared to the 500 and all these people. And that is a very, very early creed. Absolutely. Now, <clears throat> along with this, you you often hear the objection that uh, no historians or there are no outside sources about the life of Jesus. Uh, no one was writing about Jesus. Uh, now, in your book, you mentioned eight. And, and what we are going to do is I want to briefly kind of go over those eight uh, and just kind of give a little bit of... Um, I don't know, a little short summary of who they are, uh, just so that people are a little bit aware of some of the historians that talk about it. However, I want to respond to a quick objection first, and that is that uh, a lot of these guys come a little bit later. And so an objection I hear from atheists is that uh, you don't have modern or, or contemporary historians talking about Jesus. So no one in AD 30 talked about Jesus. Uh, these historians that we're going to talk about did not come into the late first or even early second century. So why is it that you think that maybe we don't have non-Christian historians from the 30s and 40s talking about Jesus if he really was such an incredible miracle worker, uh, public figure? Well, that's a great question. Um, first, first and foremost, I would say that I, I think the Gospels are, are written far earlier than than what uh, skeptical individuals claim that they are. Uh, so, so, but, but even if, even if you were to say that, uh, they were written in the seventies, that's still very early on. Uh, plus we have to also understand that, uh, we're talking about a time when even writing a book was far more expensive than what it is now. It's not like you could go down to the local market and pick up a, a, a ream of paper with 500 sheets of paper in it and start writing a book. It just, in fact, uh, I believe I read somewhere, I think Craig Keaton, one of Craig Keener's works that stated that to write a book the size of uh, the Gospel of Mark would have been something the equivalent of of, of two thousand dollars or something of that sort in wow. that time. So uh, it's not like people could just readily uh, write books uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, it was it was quite expensive. Uh, and, and I do believe that there were other ways that people could have written material down uh, as far as something that wouldn't have been kept long term. But uh, but as far as writing books, that was a very expensive process. So I think that we I think it's kind of anachronistic for us to expect that uh, there would be all of these different works about these different individuals. I mean, because even quite frankly, even the histories that we have of some of the great Roman heroes didn't come necessarily right exactly when they when they lived. Uh, they came later on. So I, I think sometimes we need to be skeptical of our skepticism because I think <laughs> we, we expect too much 
uh, I think we expect in the first century for them to have the same type of technology we have now. And I just I don't think it's fair, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, but we do have individuals who wrote of Jesus very early on. And uh, we also have to understand that uh, when we talk about oral traditions, that's often uh, dismissed. But we have to remember that uh, that people had, in fact, better memories in the first century than we do now. Because, you know, Ryan, I, I grew up uh, before there were cell phones. I'm 43, and I remember in the 80s and uh, 90s, uh, before we had the smartphones, we memorized telephone numbers. And I remember that I used to be able to remember several different telephone numbers, but now that I have everything programmed in my smartphone, I'm lucky to halfway even remember my own cell phone number, much less anyone else's. <laughs> and so with with the convenience of technology, we're, we're kind of losing the ability to memorize. But it was anticipated in ancient times that people memorized vast uh, amounts of information. So uh, it, it's not outside the realm of possibility. This, this whole idea of the telephone game doesn't really follow with oral cultures. Now, first century Israel was a very written culture, I believe, because um, Jews were trained uh, from a very early age to read from the Torah. Uh, you know, at least Jewish men were. But uh, uh, but, th- but there again, I, th- I think sometimes we need to be skeptical of our skepticism. I think that uh, sometimes we expect too much uh, in that. But uh, I think the, the level of information we have from Jesus very early on, and as early as it is, is really quite good, historically speaking. It's so good that even Bart Ehrman told a uh, group of uh, secularists that uh, that when people claim there's not a historical Jesus, they make themselves look foolish. And so that's not coming from a Christian guy. That's coming from uh, a New Testament historian, a secularist. Yeah, that is one of my favorite videos, and it might even be on one of my recommended videos on my channel, because to me, when you can get uh, a one of the, I don't know, most popular critics of Christianity, uh, definitely not a fan of Christianity or Jesus, but also a scholar in the New Testament and history uh, to come out and say what he did, where the people doubted the existence of Jesus. And he's went like, this is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that was so good. And you, you make a good point too about the memorizing of numbers. I'm the same way. I have such a hard time with numbers, but my wife blows me away. My wife uh, memorizes, you know, license plate numbers and phone numbers and credit card numbers. And it's like, <laughs> how do you, how do you remember all this? It's like, you just look at it and she memorizes it. And I'm like, I'm still trying to learn her number. I feel horrible, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am the same way. So, man, we uh, so we're kind of cooking through this, and I want to get to uh, a few of the things we discussed as far as the canonicity and how do we pick the books in the New Testament and whatnot. Uh, but I do want to just quickly touch on some of these historical figures so that uh, those listening can at least have a, a very brief introduction on who some of the people were that were writing um, about Jesus uh, pretty early on. Now, probably the most famous is going to be Josephus. Uh, now, you might get to get some objections that Josephus, you know, the Christians altered the works of Josephus, so what can we really tr- uh, trust? So maybe a, a little brief uh, short summary of who was Josephus uh, and how did he write about Jesus? Yeah, Josephus was a Jewish historian uh, who uh, who wrote his work somewhere around uh, 94 AD. Uh, he lived from about uh, 37 to 100-ish uh, AD. Uh, and so... Um, the the thing about the uh, testimonium uh, Flavianum, I think is how you call it. I probably just massacred that, but it means Flavius's testimony is what it means. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, it's it's interesting because later Josephus mentions James, the brother of Jesus, and he mentions uh, other things that it seemed to indicate that he wrote 
he wrote this material. Now, it may have been in a less Christianized version when he wrote it, uh, but there's good evidence to, to believe that he indeed did write that. And so you know, he talks about that, uh, and I'll just read it right quickly if we have time. Uh, there was about this time, uh, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, uh, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Now, that part may be an interpolation there. Uh, and when Pilate, at the suggestion that the principal men among us uh, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again uh, the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other, other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. So the core material that he presents there is uh, is stuff that you could see in the early creeds, but also things that uh, most people, other historians would agree, whether they be um, Christian or not, that uh, there was this man, he lived. Uh, the disciples believed that they had seen him alive. Uh, that's one of the minimal facts that Gary uh, Habermas presents. So uh, I think the core data that, that you see from Josephus is is legitimate. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, even if you take out uh, the things that are questionable, you still get uh, the, those core details. Now, I, if I remember off the top of my head right, I think it's Gerd Ludmann who has a quote uh, that says that we know for a fact uh, some of the details of the resurrection. Now, he obviously doesn't accept the resurrection, but he he, he knows that we know, or he says that we know that Jesus died for sure uh, because of one, Josephus, he says a Roman historian that wrote about it, but also, uh, sorry, a Jewish historian Josephus that wrote about it, but also he mentions a Roman historian, and that would be Tacitus. So, uh, what's, yes. tell us a little bit about Tacitus. So, Tacitus was a uh, Roman senator and a historian of the uh, Roman Empire, and he writes in his Annals around 116, uh, recounting the fires of Rome and how the early Christians were used as a scapegoat uh, for Rome's burning. And then he talks about uh, one Christus. Uh, he, he talks about Nero punishing Christians who were hated for their enormities, and he says, I quote, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time, most likely referring to the resurrection, uh, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but throughout the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So you can tell that he really adored that area <laughs> <laughs> from his sarcasm yeah. there. Yeah, so so right there, yeah, Christus suffering the extreme uh, punishment, I think, is is the way that it's uh, put there, uh, put together under Pontius Pilate. So a lot of those details getting added up again here, Roman historian writing in, in the early second century. Uh, Absolutely. What about uh, Clement of Rome? Clement of Rome, he's an interesting guy. He is a uh, he'd be a early uh, Christian. Uh, he's writing around 90 A.D. He became uh, the bishop of Rome. Uh, and uh, so Clement of Rome personally knew some of the original apostles. One of the things we have to remember is that Jesus not only had the 12 disciples, he also called 70 or 72, depending on how you read that, uh, to go out and preach the gospel early on. So Clement knew personally some of these individuals. And so he references Jesus throughout his letter. Uh, so here again, this serves as an early source for Jesus. Um, and so uh, 
again, he's not as early as the New Testament Gospels, especially not the New Testament creeds. But here again, you have an outside source in the first century that's talking about Jesus. And so the whole idea that no one else is writing about Jesus is just is just flawed. I mean, you, you definitely have people writing about Jesus. Now, yeah, they're mainly in Christian circles, but that's what you would expect, you know. Yeah, yeah. So another one you have here is a, a lawyer and a magistrate of the Roman Empire who was Pliny the Younger. Yes, Pliny the Younger. Uh, he he wrote somewhere around uh, 113 to one, uh, 111, 113. He writes the Epistulae. Uh, he uh, served several roles, a lawyer, magistrate. He uh, wrote extensively. Uh, he's talking about, uh, and let me go ahead and read what he says here. He says there were uh, in the habit, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain day fixed before it was light uh, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ. As to a God. So here again, you see he's identifying the fact that there was a Christ and there was this early worship of Christ as a God and bound themselves by solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to falsify their word nor to deny a trust, and so on and so forth. So what again, what you see is that he's identifying Christ. He identifies this group of individuals who are worshiping Christ uh, as a God. And so again, that's, that gives outside information about what, we're, uh, what we're, we're talking about with Christ Jesus. Yeah, and that's such an important uh, point right there, because uh, one of the objections that, we, that would, might come up is this idea that, okay, maybe there is this historical guy named Jesus, but you know, the ideas of him being um, uh, miraculous, the ideas of him uh, being God is, is a late legend, right? That comes 100 years or so later. Uh, I even had an atheist uh, bring this up to me not too long ago, where he says, you know, it's all just this late legend. And I said, okay, if you think it's a, a late legend, uh, when do you think this late legend of the Gospels was written? And I was expecting him to say, oh, the Gospels are these late legends that were written in the second century. Uh, instead, he comes back and he says, yeah, they're all late legend. And he goes, but I think, you know, I think what, you know, the scholarship shows is that the Gospel of Mark was written somewhere around, you know, 45 to 50 AD. And I'm like, wait, so you admit that even Mark comes with maybe 20 years but yet it's also a late legend. Uh, very interesting. But here is important is this historical figure uh, is also writing uh, this historian. And, and another another thing, and this is something that I'm going to hope to be researching uh, you know, later on in my PhD, is is that there there is uh, there, there's source material behind this information. We see in the creeds and other source material uh, in in other texts in throughout the Bible as well. In fact, there's this. Uh, not only do you have the, the creeds are the formalized versions of what's called the homologia throughout the New Testament, which is the common message, the early message. And in fact, the interesting thing, and I learned this in Habermas's New Testament creeds class, that every book in the New Testament, except with the sole exception of the book of Revelation, contains this homologia, this common message. Now, sometimes it's more difficult to draw out that information. The, the formalized creeds identify that material in an easy-to-catch uh, form, but the fact that you have these uh, these uh, things throughout the New Testament identifies that this message is very early, and so I don't think, quite honestly, that anyone could say any longer that that uh, I mean that doesn't mean that you have to believe in the message of Jesus or that the events were true, but I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think the evidence is showing that it was a late 
invention. In fact, that's showing quite the opposite, that it was very early on yeah. when this material came about. That's so good. Now, so we will have to kind of change gears, but just so I don't leave oh, everyone man. hanging, I know, <laughs> just so we don't leave everyone hanging, you know, there's Suetonius who writes uh, in the early second century, a Roman historian. We have Mara Bar Serapian. I always feel like I pronounce his name wrong. That to me is a very interesting uh, story there of him. Uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, him uh, writing a letter to his son from prison, uh, talking about how these great men lived and died, but get, but um, trying to encourage his son to live well. Is that kind of right, what, what he was writing? Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he even identifies the deaths of three righteous individuals, Socrates, uh, Pythagoras, and uh, one wise king of the Jews, which surely means Jesus. Like Jesus. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that he believed in Jesus, just like I don't think that, Su that Josephus did. But there was still this early respect of the man for being a righteous man. And we, and we appreciate people today who stand up for what they believe in, whether we agree with their cause or not. But uh, someone who's a, a moral, it's like Gandhi. I really greatly appreciate Gandhi, although I'm not a Hindu and, and, and I don't agree with his worldview. Yeah. The fact that he did some of the things and stood for some of the things is, makes him an admirable guy. So I think you see see that admiration happening with people early on with Jesus. Yeah, and I think that's it's so cool for me. And I know this this source is not maybe as as uh, as solid as some of the others, and there's some question about it. But I, I think it's fascinating because this is not someone writing uh, for. It, it doesn't look like someone writing for some sort of political agenda. It's not someone trying to get their right. point across. It's hey, let me write a letter to my son, uh, telling him about these wise men that lived and died, uh, and just happen to be, include Jesus. Uh, what seems to be Jesus in that list. Uh, so yeah, you also have. Uh, Lucian of Samosota, you have uh, Thallus, uh, and those would be kind of those eight that you look at. Um, but since we are, man, almost oof, 45 minutes in, for about oh my 15, goodness, seriously. Yeah, 15 minutes to go. <laughs> so uh, I want to get into kind of the, the how the Bible is chosen. So uh, some of the objections that might come up is, is that Constantine uh, put the Bible together. Uh, and maybe the in the yeah. second to third century. Can, can, can I say one quick thing? I, yeah. I warned you, I'm the king of running <laughs> rabbit trails here. I found out from one of my professors, Dr. Ken Cleaver, great man of God, wonderful teacher. I found out something very fascinating about, about the whole Council of Nicaea. Interestingly enough, Constantine was an Arian. He, he actually was he actually believed that Arius was right, but he went along with the, with the church council to go along with Athanasius because they said this is what the scripture teaches. This is what the early Christian message was about. Constantine's main thing at the Council of Nicaea was to keep order because Christianity had become the official religion of Rome or one of the accepted religions in Rome. And so he was wanting to make sure to keep the peace. He wanted something to be streamlined. And so even another thing that I've learned through the classes I've taken in historical studies is that the Council of Nicaea really didn't even settle the whole idea of of the uh, canon of scripture that didn't come in along until a later council later on in the in the uh, in the fourth century. So the whole idea that Constantine had that he settled the canon is erroneous from the start, historically speaking. Yeah, that's so good to point out. So then, how did the canon come together? Why were the books chosen that were chosen? How did we get our Bible? And so I got to get another shout out uh, to a professor here, Leo Purser. He's the one that first directed me to this information. There are five A's of canonicity, which I list in the, in the book. Uh, one of the things we have to understand is that, uh, that, that the books of the New Testament weren't chosen 
they they were understood to be inspired because they fit this criteria very early on. Again, Gary Habermas told us that within um, by 115 A.D., this is very early on, 115 A.D., something like 85 percent of the New Testament canon was already accepted. Eighty five percent of the New Testament canon was accepted by, by 115 A.D. So early on, there was this understanding of what the the New Testament canon was about. And do I have it right that um, by the end of the first century, at least the four Gospels were recognized and kind of in within a collection? Yeah, yeah. And, and my understanding is, is that a lot of times that the Gospels were grouped together. Uh, and, and of course, and you have you have different uh, different locations having different books of the New Testament. And so eventually it develops into where you have these Three canons, so to speak, uh, and most of them agreed on, and most of them had exactly the same books. There were a few exceptions, like you have uh, the Epistle of, uh, I believe it's the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas, that comes in, into uh, some of those, uh, some of the canons. You, you have a few books like that. I think the Didache crept into maybe one of the canons or something like that. But by and large, the, the books that we have in our New Testament today were were in at least some of the canons during that time. Yeah. And so that that goes into the five A's of canonicity as it was as they were looking at these books. So the the first A of um, of these tests are. Uh, is the A of antiquity. Were the books old enough? And so some of these books coming out, which are the Gnostic Gospels, uh, they were new works. They, they hadn't been heard of in the first century. Yeah. And so where in the world did some of these things come from? Uh, was it known to be around early? Was it early enough? Was it known to have been around in the first century? That was one of the things they looked at. Secondly, Apostolicity. Was the book written by an apostle or did it have an apostolic authority overseeing it? So like Hebrews, we really don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it had the authority of the apostle Paul over it. So that's one of the reasons why it was accepted. Mark, he documents the teachings of uh, Simon Peter. Uh, so he documents those things. So, so Mark himself wasn't an apostle, but he was under the authority, under the umbrella of Simon Peter's uh, apostle uh, apostolic um, title. Yeah. So, what would you say then to the objection that uh, is often floats around the internet that the Gospels are anonymous, that they actually did not attach their name, saying I Matthew penned the Gospel of Matthew? Um, are they anonymous, or how do we know that they actually wrote those uh, those books? Well, this is again coming from something I've read from Craig Keener. The Gospel of Mark would have been around two thousand dollars to produce. Something like the Gospel of Matthew or Luke would have been something like six thousand dollars to produce. This this was not the work. This, this didn't come by just a single person. This came from a community. So in other words, there was a single person writing this. Don't get me wrong, but but to produce this, I, I think there would have been people who knew who wrote this. And 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 for instance, um, early on, you see the, the uh, guys like Eusebius, and even before Irenaeus, I believe he makes a mention of this. In the second century, it's already known who wrote these Gospels. It was known where these Gospels were produced and how they came about. Um, and so I'm looking at even some of the people who whose names are attached to these Gospels. Okay, John, that makes sense. You would want John to write a Gospel. But John Mark, who's this guy? Uh, you know, why, why John Mark? Why would he be associated? And Luke, okay, now Luke may be very much a Gentile. 
uh, why would you have a Gentile <laughs> writing this book? And Matthew, for heaven's sakes, why in the world would you want a tax collector to, to write one of the Gospels? So it really doesn't make sense. I mean, the, the people that who write these Gospels wouldn't be individuals who would be chosen outside of John. Uh, but there was an early understanding in the um, in, in in the church community about who wrote these books, and um, so I, I think I think the evidence there is there. Uh, I think uh, in the end, whenever I was dealing with my doubts with the Jesus seminar, I, I think there comes a time when you have to ask yourself, who would have known better, the people who were there at the time, or someone two thousand years separated from the fact who says, well, no, this other person wrote it or, yeah. or there's no way we could know. So th that's how I've settled that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as far as I'm aware that there's no, um, documented sources, you know, early on that attribute those books to anybody else. Um, and, right. and so it yeah. was always, you know, universally recognized, uh, even if their name may not technically be on it saying I like, kind of like Paul's letters, I, Paul write this letter. Uh, it may not be written like that, but it was always attributed to them and there's no, uh, there's no, um, no comments floating around that someone else had actually written those documents. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, good. So in a, in a line that look, we're not just picking and choosing these books, these are not chosen, but these are discovered. They show signs. You talked about this antiquity that had to become kind of first century from eyewitnesses, this apostolicity. Uh, what are the other three A's of how the books got included in the Bible? Okay, another thing is authenticity. Uh, do they present the authentic message of Jesus? Do they present the authentic message of the early church? Um, again, if we accept the fact that there were these early creeds, confessions, hymns that were memorized by the early church, and quite honestly, as you as you study these these creeds and hymns, there's a rhythmic pattern to them that would have helped a person to memorize these different things. So they understood what the earliest teachings of the church were. It's kind of like the Apostles' Creed, if we think about it. I mean, after we after we quoted a few times, it sinks into our minds, and we begin to have an understanding. Or the the Lord's Prayer, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name," so on and so forth. It comes to our our memory, so they could identify the message that was presented in these books with the earliest message. Of the church, and I think that's important because I, I think sometimes you hear people talk about, well, of course that is uh, the message that you get, that is uh, the uh, the authenticity, or because those are the books that were chosen, so obviously that's what you get. But what you're saying is, no, it's it's the books are matching the creeds. It's not yes, just absolutely. It's not just why well, have this picture from the Gospels of Jesus, and therefore all other writings have to match that picture I have because I'm already just pre-assumed that these ones are accurate. That's not what we're doing. It's there's a, a, an oral tradition and the creeds that are in the early church and the early church fathers, and it's the writings that are matching up with what is already filtering around. And, and again, just just a, as a reminder, you know, guys like uh, James D.G. Dunn, Richard Baucom, Bart Ehrman, th these aren't your what you would call classic fundamentalist Christians who were you know browbeating people over the head with Bibles. Th these are these are historians par excellence, and they are identifying the fact that that these creeds are very early. Again, our Airman says that some of these creeds are dated within two years. So there are numerous historians who are accepting the fact that this material was out there. And so, and again, you know, I believe there are good reasons for believing that John was written by the apostle whose name the, the text bears. So if that's the case, then it would have surfaced in you know Asia Minor where he served as pastor, and then and then in uh, these other gospels would have surfaced. People would have known 
who wrote these books and where they come from. They're not just going to pick up a, a, a book they've never heard about and then say, well, hey, here's the gospel. We're going to call this canonized. There was a history to these books yeah. and that could be identified. Absolutely. That's good. All right. We got two A's left. Yes, so acceptance. So as we're talking about these different canons that exist in the in the earliest time, I guess I'm I'm all out of the screen. I need to move over a little bit. <laughs> uh, but there are these uh, two or three different strands of canons that exist out there. So what they're asking is, do the majority of these uh, canons accept certain books? And it was because of this that books like the Didache. Solid book, interesting book. I, I enjoy reading the DDK, but it wasn't accepted as as a canonical scripture because, let's say, if you had three canons, maybe only one had it in their canon. The other two says, "No, we don't. We don't consider it inspired." So they're not going to add that uh, to it. They're going to still say it's an important book to read, as is the Shepherd of Hermas and other books like that. But they're not going to equate it to being on the level of scripture. As uh, as as what you would find with uh, books that are that are really known well. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and how the church is accepting these things. All right, last one, authoritative. Yeah, authoritative. Uh, does it have the authoritative power of God in it? And so uh, th- this this is this is something that's important as well. Uh, we, we see here that. Uh, uh, did the text possess, possess divine authority, we may say? Was the power of God found in the text? Did it show evidence of div- divine inspiration? So this was another important aspect uh, that they were considering as they were uh, evaluating these different books to see which books were inspired and which books weren't. Yeah. All right. Good. So, uh, man, so now then, uh, another interesting question, and man, we're running out of time. If, if you're not on a short time, uh, if you're not on a strict time limit, we can go a little bit over if that's okay with you. Hey, I'm, I'm good, man. I'm okay. good. I'm enjoying this. All right. Perfect. Um, so I know a lot of people enjoy it. I, I forgot to ask you that detail before we started on it. That's a possibility because some interviews go uh, a little bit over. Some go a lot over, one hour and a half, but hey. Um, hey all right, perfect. So we can keep going a little bit and not be super pressed for time. Um but this idea that um, uh, the so I had uh, one of the first exposures I had in apologetics. I, I first started studying apologetics while I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic, and I actually had someone uh, come down the country to do some work with us, uh, and was actually an atheist. And I've told this story I think before, but uh, I found out he was an atheist actually on a mission trip, um, and I said, "Hey, I'm interested in uh, hearing your thoughts." And I was brand new to apologetics, and so uh, we stayed up most nights having long discussions uh, on questions he had, issues he has with the church. Uh, and and what was absolutely so cool is that at the end of the week, uh, he ended up accepting Christ. Well, actually, Amen. the pastor of the group he was with gave an altar call to everyone else. He accepted Christ. And when I uh, went up to him afterwards, I said, did I see what I think I just saw? And he said, yeah, after talking with you, I had no more excuses. And I thought, well, how how cool is that, that this person was on a mission trip, they're involved in the church, they're doing things, but they hadn't gotten to that point because there's just all these barriers blocking their way, right? And that's the, a lot of the goal of apologetics is to tear down those barriers yeah. so they can truly see the gospel. It's obviously not apologetics that saves, it's the gospel, uh, but it helps people yeah, see that clearly. Yeah, the Holy clearly. Spirit working through it. Yeah. And so, but anyways, so one thing that he brought up was how do the books get chosen? And what about all these uh, other gospels? What about the gospel of Judas? What about the gospel of Mary? What about the gospel of Thomas? Uh, clearly there are these other gospels uh, that were written. And we kind of talked about this a little bit with the Gnostic gospels. Um, but what we're saying here is um, these are written late. In fact, when are most of the Gnostic gospels written about the second late? 
second, second, second century yeah. at least. Uh, I mean, there's some people who would argue that there may be portions of the Gospel of Thomas that may be early, but if but if it is early, it was it was something that was most likely uh, copied from the four canonical Gospels as we already have it. Uh, but but you have, I mean, it, it, and it's interesting. It's such a bizarre thing that in the Gospel of Thomas. You have such statements as uh, uh, Jesus accepting uh, the the worship of women, but saying things like they had to become men before they could be disciples. I mean, it's really bizarre stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's way out there. And so the interesting thing is that what you see in the second century, third century, and so on, is that Gnosticism. There were there were seeds of Gnosticism in the first century, but it really flourished in the second century, and it, and it really adopted this Christian Platonism uh, to a level and degree that they that they believed that the God of the Old Testament was completely different of the God of the New Testament, and uh, and and the way to be saved was having the secret knowledge of God, where you would escalate through. I think it's these seven eons. Of heaven, and so the way you got past the gate uh, where the angel was is to whisper some word or some secret, and he would let you into the next level of heaven, and you would continue till you got to the highest. This is nothing like what you see in early Christianity. Again, coming back to that idea that the early material dates to within months, no later than two years after Jesus. That's early on. That's ground zero. But this stuff is coming from way out there. So. Um, Three things I mentioned in the book, uh, the fake gospels weren't accepted. The early Christians knew about some of these documents, and they said, listen, it doesn't meet the criteria. One, these gospels weren't quoted by the earliest leaders of the church. They popped up out of nowhere uh, in the second century. Secondly, they don't contain the orthodox teachings. This whole idea that women have to be made to in into men before they can be saved is ludicrous. You see nothing of that yeah. in the in the New Testament canon. And then thirdly, there's no root in apostolic authority whatsoever. And so uh, it's interesting that the four Gospels, you have Matthew, who's a tax collector, the last man to be chosen to be a writer. You have John Mark, who's this guy? You know, he has an altercation with Paul on one of the missionary journeys. Paul kicks him out. <laughs> Barnabas takes him to a missionary journey, so he's got a bad reputation. Luke, um, Luke is a, is a physician, very well-trained individual, but he's a Gentile. And then John, of course, and he would match, but you have gospels coming from Mary Magdalene, you have gospels coming from Thomas, all over the place. It, it doesn't match what you see with these early gospels in the New Testament canon. So it's just a head and shoulders, there's a difference between between the two groups. Yeah, and obviously if they're written in the second century, then uh, the people who uh, whose names are on them that supposedly they're written by couldn't have written it. Uh, you know, exactly. Mary gave birth to Jesus somewhere around zero uh, year zero, uh, she can't be writing the Gospel of Mary in in the second century. That's just uh, she is she is long dead by then. Um, exactly. All right. So looking at some of the historical kind of evidences for the faith, uh, man, there's a lot that we could go into in some of the archaeology. But a question did come in. I did talk to tell you I wanted to talk about this and get your thoughts on it. Uh, the question did come in asking about, uh, here we go, the Shroud of Turin. And so uh, here the question is, uh, did Gary Habermas in your classes, uh, maybe, uh, did he ever talk about the Shroud of Turin? 
He spoke a little bit about the Shroud of Turin in the classes, but uh, to be honest, we were kind of focused on on other issues. So he kind of just briefly discussed the, the Shroud of Turin. But I did hear a lecture uh, that he gave on uh, the Shroud of Turin at uh, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics a few years ago in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, there are some startling you know, things. And the first thing I would want to say to people is that we don't have to have the Shroud of Turin to, to accept the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, whether the Shroud is legitimate or not, early creeds, early testimony of the church— uh, the, the transformed power. I go back even to the to minimal facts that Dr. Habermas presents. That's the bread and butter uh, as we defend the resurrection of Jesus. There's tons of evidence out there to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But there are some fascinating things about this shroud. Uh, with, for instance, that uh, it's a 3D image. I do recall uh, Gary saying at the conference that uh, that they showed uh, that they noticed that with. Uh, around the teeth of Jesus that it looked like uh, it looked weird and he and I think it was Habermas that said that uh, that that someone took it to a dentist and said that that's the the best set of x-rays that he's ever seen so it is the the information out there is really interesting that it seems like something radioactive I've read some papers on this some uh, scholarly papers on this issue that they believe that there's some type of radiation that emitted the image from from the corpse and uh it's even now that if if that's true that the levels of radiation to produce an image like that would have if there was anyone alive there would have killed them due to radiation poisoning so there's just some bizarre things coming out of the shroud and the more they study it the more it's being studied the, the more bizarre it gets quite honestly yeah and we covered it in my resurrection class as well uh, in, in my master's program and 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 that's kind of where i stand is is look if the shroud turns out to be a fake and whatever okay i'm not that's not our one piece of evidence that's not even the main right. piece of evidence i don't bring i don't even bring that up when i discuss the evidence for the resurrection however just as you said there are enough weird, strange, kind of like that just doesn't make sense, right? It's, it's dated in the right time area, the way it's, 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 the image is almost burned into it, but it's not burned. It's not, it's not painted. It's, it's in the microscopic fibers of the very fibers of the thing. It can't be woven because it's too detailed. It's of a crucifixion victim. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. It's like, man, if this is a fake, someone 2000 years ago had some crazy technology that we don't even know what it is today. Yeah, and that's exactly right. To produce this image, we don't even have the technology that would emit the type of radiation to produce that type of image now, much less in medieval times or or whenever. In addition to that, I do remember Habermas stating in the lecture that he gave at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics that if you look at the back, the markings, the whip marks, it matches the uh, the the uh, catanine tails that they would have used. It matches the instruments they would have used there as well. Uh, there's been pollen found on the Shroud of Turin that dates to the first century. One of the um, one of the plants they found was something that only grew uh, in Jerusalem and normally bloomed around March, April, in April. Uh, that's about the only time it blooms. And so there, you find all of these interesting things that that really seem to pinpoint it back to the first century back to Jesus's area uh, and that time back to the time frame, back to the area. And so uh, it's this is a very fascinating, 
it's a very fascinating find in yeah. my opinion. And even with that, the, there's bloodstains uh, that that that, yeah. that resemble a crown of thorns. It's like how many crucifixion victims would have little, you know, bloodstains like that on the around the top of their head. And so, just again, some interesting things that in my mind I go, ah, there's just one too many weird coincidences. I think it's legitimate, but again, I'm not, I'm not banking on that. I, I I'm, it's not the grounding of my faith or anything of that sort. You, you know, Ryan, I, I'm in the same persuasion, too, because the, one of the things that really caught my attention was the fact you also have the spear mark in the side mm -hmm. that's evident there. But the fact that normally you see when a person's crucified in paintings that the nail marking is here. But this was in a more accurate position. It was there in the wrist yeah. where a person could be held. So th there's just so many things that uh, that seem to suggest that this might be the real deal. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's uh, kind of go through another couple questions, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, uh, this question came in. I don't. I don't know if you have a knowledge on this, so we'll see. Uh, but uh, this question came in on uh, the: uh, Should I take the King James Apocrypha as fact, so to speak? Do you know anything about the King James Apocrypha? The King James Apocrypha. Well, if they're talking about the Apocrypha, uh, that would be okay. So that that is a group of books that's written in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, so that comes between uh, the the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, and so there, there's nothing wrong with reading these. In fact, I, I think it's I think it's very important to read these uh, these books because, quite honestly, there's a lot of historical material about Judas Maccabeus and uh, and, and and things of that nature that helps us understand uh, Hanukkah. I mean, Hanukkah came out of uh, these things that took place in uh, in the Second Temple Judaism. So, so I think I don't think there's anything wrong with reading the Apocrypha. In fact, I think that even as the early Christians understood, there were um, inspired, infallible, inerrant books which you see in the New Testament canon, and there were books that may not have had that that um, that label of being inspired, but they were important to read, like the Shepherd of Hermas and like the Didache. And so I think that the Apocrypha would be at that level. Very important information to read. Uh, there's nothing wrong with reading it. Just understand that, uh, uh, at least for us Protestants, we understand that it doesn't have that seal of, of authority that, uh, that, the, uh, that the other books of the Old Testament have. Of course, it would be linked more in the Old Testament than the New Testament, but it doesn't have that seal of authority that the other Old Testament books would. Yeah, and, and even the Jewish people who wrote it, being Jewish history, even they don't include it in the canon of their Old Testament, right? So, exactly. so they're not even, it's their own writings and they're not seeing it as inspired. So uh, we should probably agree with them since they are the ones who wrote it and didn't see it as inspired. Well, and it's like First Enoch. I mean, First Enoch was very popular in, in the uh, in the first century, but I don't know that anyone took it as being in, inspired scripture. So, you know, the same thing with the Apocrypha, with the Old Testament. I mean, they're very important documents, they're good to read. But it's not on the level of being inspired as the other books of the Old Testament. Yeah, good. All right. Next question coming from Agnes. Uh, is there evidence that you know about of the hours of darkness experienced when Jesus hung on the cross? So, yeah. I, so what we see in the Gospels is we see that uh, when you when you calculate it around 12 o'clock noon, that's when darkness ensued until about three o'clock. Uh, it, whenever Jesus gave up the spirit. It's interesting that, uh, let me see if I can find this, Thallus is one of the individuals that we mentioned. Now, again, uh, on the level of, of 
historical acceptance, this wouldn't be as high up as like Clement of Rome. But he is quoted. Let me see if I can pull up this right quick. So Thallus, he is a believed to write around 55 AD. Uh, he was a first century historian. Now here again, understand we don't have his his uh, the copy of his work. He's being quoted. Uh, by uh, Julius Africanus, I believe, who writes in 162.40. But uh, Thallus writes, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in this third book of his, of his history, calls, As appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Mm-hmm. So there were early people discussing this darkness that transpired for those few hours on Good Friday and wondering what in the world was this. They're wondering, was this an eclipse of the sun? Uh, Was this something else that happened? But apparently this was something that wasn't just in Jerusalem. This was a regional thing, and this shook everyone to the core. What in the world just happened? Yeah. And they're still trying to figure it out in 55 AD. Yeah, wow, that's very interesting. Now, uh, as we kind of wrap this up, I think it's important to kind of point out a few things, and I know you mentioned this uh, in your book. Um, when we talk about uh, the historical evidence for the resurrection, are, are, are you saying that because we have some manuscript evidence, because these other historians, Roman and, and Jewish, are writing about Jesus, because we have you know uh, different uh, archaeological evidences that we didn't completely get into, uh, are we saying, therefore... Uh, Christianity is true. The Bible is the inspired, authoritative Word of God. So I think that um, ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us, and, and I think everyone would agree with that. But I, you know, it's like, it goes back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Either the resurrection did happen or it didn't. And I hope I'm, I hope I'm, I'm answering the question as I understand it here. Either the resurrection happened or it didn't. The resurrection, if the resurrection did ha- happen, it did actually occur, then we have a reason to be hopeful. We have a reason to be glad. We have a reason for our faith. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then we have no hope whatsoever. We're still in our sins. We have we have no hope for eternity or whatever. Th- then there really is a reason to, to worry with this pandemic and everything going on. I think if if you're asking, does the evidence produce faith? I think the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us into faith. But if you're saying, do we have reasons for believing the Scripture because the events it describes are true? Then yes, I say I would say we do. I think that the seal of the Holy Spirit is on the Scriptures, and I think ultimately that the true test of the Scriptures' authenticity is not only just in the history that is confirmed by historians that is confirmed by all the evidence but it is the the uh, the leadership of the holy spirit the transformative power that the Holy Spirit brings in and through our lives. I hope that yeah. answers the question. No, yeah, absolutely. And you kind of, you know, hit on it and it maybe a slightly different way than I had in mind when I asked it. Um, you know, because I, I just, I guess I was thinking of the objection that is, okay, even if uh, this historical guy named Jesus existed and even if he died and even if these historians uh, talk about him and even if the Shroud of Turin, you know, maybe is his shroud and, and even if these, you know, uh, it's real historical stories, that doesn't prove that God exists or that, uh, uh, that the, the supernatural maybe aspect of it. And, and I think, you know, it doesn't prove that uh, it's the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God. 
uh, just because some okay. details are right. Because like someone's could say, well, you could write a story about New York City, uh, and but then it, talk about Thor coming in and uh, Captain America saving it. And just because New York City is real and uh, you can go visit it and you can see the Empire State Building doesn't mean that there is a you know King Kong climbing the side of the skyscraper. So so well, it's I, connecting. I, I think with Sorry, yeah. I, I, I think what you what you can see through this is is that Jesus was saying all along through his ministry that that he was going to die and he was going to raise on the third day. Um, and, and then he was talking about theologically, he was bringing God into the equation that that God was going to raise him. I mean, so he, he brings up examples like Jonah as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. So, so you have this early testimony of Jesus's message and he's identifying this with what was going to happen. And let me add another little side note here. That's not what Jews, Jewish individuals expected to happen. Yeah. Everyone, when they looked at Daniel chapter seven uh, and the ancient of days of the son of man come the ancient of days, they were looking at that being some eschatological resurrection to take place at the end of days, not to happen like this. So Jesus was kept preaching this message. They didn't understand it, that he was going to die and he was going to raise again on the third day. And so he, all through his, out of his ministry, he's saying that. But then he dies and then he raises again on the third day. That, to me, I think that that is, you'd have to, it's a long stretch to say, okay, Jesus got this right. He raised himself from the dead, but I'm still not going to believe in God because that could happen to anybody. I, I think that's a long stretch yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I just messed everything up. I hit something and there we go. You are not Ryan Polly and I'm not Brian Chill. And there we go. Um, <laughs> I was trying to respond to a message and it just didn't work well. Um, yeah, I just, again, I, I think it's important when having uh, the conversation because that objection often comes up uh, of recognizing not only what you're going with is, is the truth that is behind it of, of the, the historical evidence that we have for the resurrection, uh, what that means about Jesus Christ, and then how Jesus has yes. pointed to all the other stories throughout Scripture. Uh, it's also important to point out that, yes, I'm not saying that just because uh, we found an ossuary of Caiaphas, or just because uh, Josephus says that a man named Jesus was crucified, therefore everything about Christianity is true, but it does. Uh, history and historical evidence and, and archaeology can point to the, the truthfulness of Scripture's reasonableness, right? The story becomes a lot more reasonable, a lot more believable. The more details we confirm, and how we have not disproven uh, certain aspects of Scripture, right? We're not finding archaeology and history pointing things false. Instead, the more we find, the more it points to the historical credibility of this, and so that story becomes more believable and more believable uh, that we have. And so even if you can't prove every single detail historically, if I tell you a story and I can prove ten, eight out of the ten details, maybe I can't prove the other two, but you have a lot more reason to believe it uh, than if I can't prove anything. Yeah, I, I see what you say. There, there, there is definitely a cumulative case that exists there. And so another thing too that uh, that I've that I've learned through, through my studies is something that uh, that was said in class once before is that when we come right down to it, no matter no, no matter and, and and I believe and I believe the professor who said this believes in in the inspiration of scripture uh, that all the scriptures inspired, but even if there were errors in the Bible, which I don't believe there are, but even if there were, if the resurrection's true, then Christianity's true. Uh, so, so really, in the end of the day, if you can show that the resurrection is true, uh, you have just shown Christianity to be true. That is really the linchpin that holds Christianity in place. Now, do I believe in that Genesis through Revelation is inspired? Absolutely, I do. Do I believe in what it says and that it's true? Absolutely, I do. 
but this core front and center of Christianity is found in the resurrection of Jesus. And as you said, you know, if we have 10 facts and we can demonstrate eight of the 10 facts to be true, there's every reason in the world to believe in the resurrection. Absolutely. So good. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, you know, I have your, your, your book is linked below your website, your Facebook, your Twitter. I encourage everyone to go check that out. Uh, any kind of last word you want to share on and kind of what you do, your, your podcast, where people can find out more information about you. Yeah, so it's uh, found at bellatorchristi.com. Uh, that's the online ministry we have there. Uh, so so as far as, as long as I'm around, uh, I plan on, uh, as long as I'm on planet Earth, I plan to keep uh, posting articles and, and keep uh, information out there. What, one, of the, one of the reasons I have this ministry, let me say real quickly, is that whenever I was searching uh, for information about the reliable reliability of Scripture and of the resurrection, I didn't find anything. I didn't know it was even out there. But so what I try to do there at Bellator Christie is to have information available for people free of charge. Uh, there's several different articles. This thing's been going on since 2012. Uh, so articles, you can find links to the podcast uh, there as well. Uh, Curtis Evelo and I, we uh, co-host the podcast uh, together. And uh, so we try to post a podcast about every Wednesday when possible. Uh, the podcast can be found at the website, but it's also available on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play. And we recently got the podcast on iHeartRadio. So uh, just about anywhere where you can find an app to listen to podcasts, uh, you can find the Bellator Christie podcast on there. Wonderful. Thank you, Brian, so much for spending this time and helping us all think deeply about uh, Christianity, the, the, the Bible, and the history backing up the stories that we see and the books that we have. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, guys. And for those of you who are watching, thank you so much for watching. I really do appreciate it. I hope that you were thinking deeply, that you learned a lot, and that you can use this to better stand up for the truth of Christianity. In the next few weeks, you're not going to want to miss them. Next week, it, Mike Lacona is coming on to talk about New Testament contradictions and how can we reconcile them. And the week after that will be William Lane Craig discussing the arguments for God's existence and doing a Q&A with the questions that you have when it comes to Christianity, apologetics, and philosophy. So with that, we're going to be signing off. Have a blessed rest of your day. Make sure you subscribe, check out all the different social media accounts to know who's coming up to interact and continue thinking deeply about Christ. He's the best thing that we can think about. Have a blessed rest of your week. I just ask you leave, won't hesitate to follow your love.